Welcome. This is the Skins Podcast produced by the Facade Tectonics Institute. With industry thought leaders, we take on all things building skin. This year, we are featuring architects, developers, and others in the AEC industry to explore how they design and facilitate building equity in its physical form. I am Alexandra Blakesley from Technoform, and I have the pleasure of being joined today by Carlton Brown of Direct Invest Development. Carlton has been developing high-performance and sustainable buildings for over 30 years. He is a pioneer for the development of affordable housing, while maintaining high performance and quality standards. One of his early projects at 1400 Fifth Avenue led the way as the first and largest multifamily affordable green building in New York City. That project received numerous accolades, including New York State's Green Building Tax Credit and the Energy Project of the Year in 2003 by the New York chapter of the International Association of Energy Engineers. Based on a belief that all communities, regardless of race, ethnicity, or income, are entitled to a sustainable future, Mr. Brown and his team have become market leaders throughout the U.S. in restructuring urban investment to create green, economically sustainable, and equitable urban habitats that value cultural diversity. Developers are a critical stakeholder and drivers of how our built environment comes to be. And I've heard several people refer to you as one of the good developers. And I'm sure that's a result of many aspects of who you are, what you stand for, and how you conduct your work. One one thing that stood out to me is your use of the African philosophy Ubuntu in your work. Can you maybe share with the audience and give us a sense of what that means to you and how have you incorporated that into your own philosophy around developing sustainable and equitable buildings? Well, first of all, for those that are not familiar with the word Ubuntu, it's um, the word means I am because you are. Fundamentally, it's a Southern African concept uh, that says we are all connected through our collective humanity. And so when I think about it, and take that and apply it not just to our community, but to our planet. We've got this one little planet, right? And then we've figured out ways through these man-made social constructs around race and gender and ethnicity and religion to slice and dice it and put it into all these little disparate pieces and set people over here because they are poor, over there because they're wealthy, or over there because they're Muslim or Jewish or whatever because they're African-American, because they're Latino. And so what I say is, let's forget that slicing and dicing, right? And let's get back to the notion that we are all one, right? We're all one people. We're connected by our collective humanity. And the only way I can exist is because of you. And the only way you can exist is because of me. We're all codependent on this little planet we call Earth. And we lose we lose sight of that. And so can we start to reimagine community so that instead of losing sight of that, we reinforce that. So that's what it means to me and how I hope it comes out in our work. That's great. I, I love that philosophy. Um, so developers sometimes get a bad reputation for being focused on the triple bottom line. And you talk about going far beyond that paradigm. 
Can you talk about your process and how do you simultaneously achieve affordable housing without lowering your standards for high performance materials? You know, one of the things that I think we always have to do is break the rules, right? In fact, when we hire people, whether they're people on our staff or architects and engineers, we are considering, we try to assess how willing are they to break the rules? Because the first thing I believe is the rules got us in this hot mess we're in now. And in order to fix it, we can't keep going by the same rules. So we start to really think about materiality, um, both using technology and sometimes using ancient technology. So on the one hand, we're incorporating um, rammed earth walls, you know, into our buildings, contemporary urban buildings in Atlanta, but also in South Africa, right? And so that's a very old technology. On the other hand, we are looking at how do we assemble buildings using um, cross-laminated timber and a whole lot of unimaginable uh, wall systems that didn't exist 10 years ago. And so we try to look at ways to integrate old technology, new technology, traditional knowledge, right, and create buildings that just perform better and perform better for everybody because we put everyone in the same buildings. We don't separate poor people or old people, et cetera. Our, we think of our buildings as building, rebuilding the fabric of community. So we think differently about that. So, so, so often you will have people tell you about what we can't do because of our budget constraints, right? And what I believe is budget constraints can make us smarter and wiser in the way that we use our resources and it, and it can drive us to creativity. And so if you have all the money in the world, right? There is no reason to be creative. You can just do whatever you wanna do, but when you don't have enough, right? Then it drives you to think, well, how do, we, how do we increase our performance without spending more money, right? One of the things when we interview architects and engineers for our projects, I say to them, look, I want to improve building performance by 20%, and I want to reduce the cost by 10%. And some of them look at me and say, you know what, you're absolutely crazy, right? Others of them say, that's a real challenge. How do we do that? And we're looking for the ones that think about that as a challenge, because when you establish those parameters on the front end tells the whole team that we're going to do something differently here. So that's kind of what our process is, trying to encourage people to break the rules. That's really, really interesting. And I, I think it's interesting what you talked about a bit with kind of using ancient technologies. We mm. we talk a lot about FT at FTI that, you know, we use a lot of glass in facades and uh, windows, but we've basically taken this, you know, material that was used for a very long time as like, you know, single pane units where it was more recyclable um, and mm. theoretically is infinitely recyclable, but then we've mm. kind of glued it together with a lot of other things. And mm. yeah, so it's, it's an interesting, interesting view that you have. So what was the tipping point for you in recognizing the value of high-performance materials in building design? Actually, the tipping point for me was actually the building that you cited, 1400 on 5th, which was in Harlem. And when we did that building, there was no such thing as green affordable housing, much less green affordable housing for ownership, right? And we 
there was an RFP from the city of New York, HPD. And on that corner, they wanted us to build townhouses. Now, we had built some townhouses, these two-family townhouses in Brooklyn, and we had done stuff secretly so they wouldn't get hold of this high-performance thing because the city wasn't onto that. They were like, everyone needs to do everything just the way everyone else does it, which is never the way I was thought to think about anything. And so in Brooklyn, we had built buildings that used radiant floor heating and high-performance envelope system using SIP panels in the city. HPD didn't even know what SIP panels were. They just had no idea, right? And so on this project, they wanted more townhouses. So we told them we were going to build more townhouses, right? But it was an inappropriate site. The corner of 5th Avenue and 116th Street in Manhattan, right? Townhouses, no. So we came back with drawings for an eight-story building, and they said, oh, no, this is a townhouse site. I'm like, no, 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 no. We're building this eight-story building, and it's going to be a condominium, right? And then I said, and it's going to be a green building. And they said, oh, no, 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 no. You can't afford to do green buildings for, for you know, affordable housing because we know that because at Battery Park City, that's what they're doing. Green buildings are for the wealthy. I'm like, well, we're actually working on a project at Battery Park City, and no, green buildings don't have to be for the wealthy, right? And so that's when we started to change paradigm because HPD, in order to punish us, reduced the amount of subsidy that we were going to get for the building, right? And so instead of building the building the traditional way, which we were never going to do, we looked at and we created, worked with uh, a wall company, Eastern Drywall, developed a high-performance panelized wall system which was the first one to go in in New York City, maybe on in, in America, right? And so we developed this wall system that went up in panels, the floor system went up in panels, and the whole building got erected and closed eight stories in about six weeks, right? And then that was when HPD also realized that when they were, that there was no boiler in the building. They were like, how are you going to heat and cool this building? We said, we're putting in ground source heat pumps with these 1,500 foot deep wells. And they were like, oh no, that's not legal in New York. You've got to have a boiler. So we went through all these sort of things, you know, which was really an education project process for the city. When the project got done, it won a whole lot of accolades. And the very first people in line saying, wow, what a great thing we've done here at HPD, you know, making this project happen. And so the thing that that taught me is People are open to change, right? They just don't know the path, right? But if you show them the pathway to change, people will adopt it because we get so comfortable in doing what we've always done, right? And now if you went to HPD and said you were going to do some housing and use their subsidy and it didn't at least meet enterprise green community standards or somebody's high performance standards, right? They would run you out you know, of the office, right? And now if you if you're doing money, you've got to decarbonize. You can't put any more natural gas into the buildings. And that building, they said, well, HPD had been working on an infrastructure thing to bring high pressure natural gas to the to um, We said, no, we don't really need that. And like, what do you mean you don't need it, right? And so the world changes, right? But the world changes because people change. And sometimes you just have to take a stand and people will ultimately get it. So for us, we think of ourselves as change agents, right? We are willing to, you know, take a little knock to Nick's on the head 
but it makes a difference over the long haul. We need more of you. <laughs> <laughs> What's your team's process for selection of materials? And, you know, now that you have even more technologies at, at your fingertips mm -hmm. since that project, and how, how does that really play a role in the resulting building skin? Well, you know, we, we have a lot more tools now than we had then, you know, um, with Revit and BIM model, modeling, right? We can really get right down to the nitty gritty of how a building is going to operate as a system, right? When we started doing this, it was really difficult to do a whole systems analysis of how a building worked. And in fact, what we were doing, we were using an engineering firm who one of the principals had been a naval architect, right? And was doing building commissioning and systems analysis for the Navy as they designed and built ships, right? And he helped us do a lot of the analysis of those early buildings. Well, now there's just so many software tools now that every graduate student in engineering or architecture school, you know, has access to those things, right? And so, I think that way it helps us just deliver a lot more choices about how materials will perform together. So for us, it's not necessarily a single material, but how do they work together, right? And are, are you getting the right things right, like air barriers? Well, there's nothing new about air barriers, right? We didn't use them before, but no one really had to invent that. And so real effective air barriers and being sure that they've done well. How can you model, you know, there was a time you couldn't really model how joints were performing in a building, right? And if there was gonna be just a whole lot of energy transfer at those joints, right? You just, you really couldn't model that. But now it's easy to model that long before you put the building together, you can have this sort of infrared model of where, you know, you've got problems in your building, right? and where you've got these heat sinks, right? And so the tools are a lot better if you use them. Frequently, the challenge in using them is that it causes you to have to do details over and over and over again. And, and some developers and some architects and engineering teams don't want to do that. They want to go forward fast, right? And I understand the need to go forward fast, but going forward fast doesn't necessarily get you to the right answer because it's an iterative process, right? And so every project, every site is a little different because design is very location site specific, right? The design for a building on this block will be very different from a design for a building two blocks away, you know? Uh, and so just thinking about that, it sort of drives you to that notion of this iterative approach that gets you different answers so that I could be building a building there with a north-south orientation and one two blocks away with an east-west orientation and it will lead me to all sorts of different decisions about the materiality of those buildings just because of the different orientations of the building. So everyone gets you a different answer. This makes complete sense. How do you ensure that the goal of equity isn't value engineered out during the design and construction process? And more broadly, how do you shift paradigms to align to those principles that we talked about earlier? Making sure equity is not value engineered out. First of all, I'm going to deconstruct that. I don't believe in value engineering, right? 
value engineering is what you've done when you haven't properly engineered the building from the beginning and you're going back and trying to correct the mistakes. And what it really looks like is cost cutting, right? And so for us, our process is different, right? We usually start off, and, and value engineering usually starts when you do a set of drawings and you then you get the drawings and complete it and you hand them over to a contractor and you say, what's the cost of this? And the contractor says, is one and a half times, you know, what you thought it was going to cost. And so then you start value engineering, i.e. cost cutting, right? And that's where equity and everything else gets cut out. Our process is different, right? We don't hire contractors. We hire construction managers at risk on the same day that we hire the architects and the engineers, right? And we have a charrette on day one before we start putting pencil to paper that we start to talk about what are our project objectives here and talk about strategies to get there. And out of that, we come back with a report that says, these are things we think we can do. This is what we think the costs are gonna do. And we start off with a project budget based on that sort of conceptual analysis. We go to schematic design. The architects, the engineers, and the CM get together and they give us another budget based on schematic design. Now, at each phase where we go from schematic design to design development to um, CDs, right, the number should not be getting larger. It should be shrinking because we're getting more refined, but staying on target, right? So as opposed to a value engineering process, it means I gave a set of completed drawings to somebody that was not engaged in the process of design. We do the other way. So when we get to the end, We've got what we want at the price that we want it, and, and it follows the values and the decisions we made on the front end. So you have to just sort of deconstruct and throw out the window that old process of setting up a set of drawings, getting them completed, then sending them out to bid to five contractors and let those five contractors come in and tell you what they think. Doesn't work, never has worked, never will work. No, it's really interesting you take that iterative approach and bring in really all the disciplines at the beginning versus that more linear process. I want to switch gears a bit and ask you um, some more a more specific question about energy demand. So we believe at FTI that improving the building skin or the exterior of a building is really essential to achieving resiliency and sustainability. And the building skin itself has the ability to reduce energy demand. And I think that relates to one of your own principles at Direct Invest Development, generate more energy than we use. So how do facades play a role in the energy burden for tenants? And what positive or negative effects have you seen in your years as a developer? The best way to improve, look, you know what? The best way to improve the energy performance in a building is pretend the profession of mechanical engineering had never been invented, right? Just, just pretend there was no such thing as a mechanical engineer, and then you'll get the right answer on how to improve energy performance, right? And so, and you know, I'm laughing, but it's really true because this whole, this whole sort of modernism in architecture said, I can build a glass box and my mechanical engineer can make it hot or cool or whatever I want it to be, right? And the energy thing is irrelevant, right? Well, if you we worked in Rwanda, right, rebuilding a town, you know, after the genocide, right? And there are no mechanical engineers, there are no mechanical systems, but the building still had to be 
the right temperature for human use, right? And so you really rely on the building materials, right? You rely on their insulating values, their validity, the, their ability to hold heat during the day and release it at night, the ability to shade it at the right place for the right time of season, for the right time of year, rather, and let sun on that wall during the other parts. And, and so you really think more holistically about the building. So forget Rwanda, think about New York, right? Then you come to New York, you need to have that same set of principles of thinking about how can I make this as efficient as I can with no mechanical engineers, right? Uh, no electrical engineers. There was, I was a, I was a juror on a project for the AIA International Design Awards one year. And there was a building that was done at, uh, at Tulane University that it wasn't on my list of buildings to go to. But when one of the other jurors said they were putting this on the short list, I'm like, I've got to go see that building because I don't believe it, right? And it was the student center. I can't remember the name of the student center, but it was an old cast-in-place concrete superstructure with um, uh, masonry infill panels, right? And they redid the building. They went and took out the, um, the infill panels, blah, blah, blah. And they claimed that this building would maintain comfort temperatures um, in New Orleans during the summer with no air conditioning, right? And I said, that's absolutely impossible, right? And so I'm like, I told one of the jurors, this is one building I'm going to go see because I think it's bullshit, right? And so I went to this, I went down to New Orleans in July to go to see the student center, right? At Tulane University. And it was just the most amazing thing, right? That the building was, you know, it wasn't cold, but it was temperate, right? It was 95 degrees and 100% humidity, but it was okay inside the building. And all they had were fans, and they used, the building was built into this, um, it was shaded largely by this, this whole stand of old growth live oak trees, right? And so you felt like you were in a treehouse, right? And so you were shaded by the trees. The way they moved air around and ventilated it, it just made it work perfectly well, right? And if you think about it, that's how homes were once cool, you know? They were shaded at the right time and they were ventilated and you didn't need a large mechanical system there. They had, what do you call these little fans that run on a belt, you know, and you see them in old movies, you know, they kind of slowly turn around and move the air. That's what they had. And so that was one thing that just like really impressed me that really by getting the envelope right, and you can have glass in them, right? But how do you shade the glass? Where is that glass? Where is it treated? On which elevations, et cetera? So it, 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 what percentage of glass do you have? And, and what is the building mass itself? And what and what are the conditions you're dealing with? Are you, are you in New Orleans or are you in Buffalo, right? And it, it makes a difference, you know, where you are and how you design the building because your envelope in Buffalo would look, not look like the envelope in New Orleans. So just thinking about that um, and using the sort of analytical tools that we have, and sometimes just using your eyes, you know, to understand the vernacular architecture that existed before mechanical engineers got so smart. And I hope the mechanical engineers uh, are listening to this and have my address. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, I'm sorry to say that I, I, I happen to be one, but I, I, I agree with you. I agree with you. So we're, we're good. <laughs> no, I think it, I think it's a great, great point to, to leave us with that the enclosure really can, and the envelope can really do so much, you know, and you, it, it doesn't require adding complexity in a lot of situations. And we can use these, these old ways of working. So with that, I will um, leave us there. And I wanted to just say thank you so much for all of your insights. Really appreciate your time coming on the, the podcast for Facade Tectonics. Any parting words before we hop off? I wasn't aware of this um, podcast, but I'm just happy to hear that there are podcasts where people are sharing sort of best and emerging practices because there, in some ways there are never any best practices except for maybe 10 minutes in one day because everything <laughs> is always emerging. Hopefully everything is always emerging and we're always looking for that next bridge, that next avenue. What can we do next? How can we improve on what we've built on? So working on this system of continuous improvement, podcasts like this of what moves the industry. So yeah, that's it. Thank you for doing this. 